You're listening to the Cantor Fitzgerald Investor Podcast. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. You're all very welcome today to our first quarterly markets event of the year. It certainly is an interesting time to be discussing markets, considering what we've experienced over the last couple of days. My name is Johnny Lynch. I'm head of private clients at Cantor. Many of you will know Cantor for sure because I see a lot of very familiar faces around the room. So to our clients in the room, thank you very much for your continued custom. For those of you who don't are not that familiar with Cantor Fitzgerald. We are a wealth management business, a financial planning services business operating in Ireland for the last 25 years. Today's event should be, the idea is that it's a short and sharp event. Come in, have your lunch, listen to some insightful views from our panel, and we'll let you off fairly shortly after that. For the day, we have a compare is Alan Breen. Alan is a senior portfolio manager with us. He's been with us for over five years. Many of you will know him from his contributions to News Talk in the morning. Ladies and gentlemen, I'll hand you over to Alan. Thank you. Thank you, Johnny. Thank you all for coming today. Appreciate the good turnout, so that's great. I'm going to try and keep this on point. I'm conscious you're all very busy and a lot going on in markets as well, so I think we all want to get back before half two, given what's going on. So we'll just start by welcoming the panel. Thank you all for coming. Firstly, I'd like to introduce Pierce McManus. Pierce is the Chief Investment Officer for Marion Investment Managers. He has over 25 years experience in the investment industry. Pramit Ghosh is a global strategist at Cantor with over 30 years investment experience and is one of Ireland's best known fund managers. He's managed funds at Friends First, Aviva and Davy before joining Marion Cantor in 2015. He's successfully run global equity income portfolios since 2001. And finally, Laura. Laura Reedy, our head of pensions, a certified financial planner, a pension trustee practitioner, specialized investment advisor, a QFA, there's not enough letters. Laura has extensive experience in technical expertise spanning all areas of retirement planning, so thank you as well for coming. So I just want to start off actually in terms of the, the guys on the investment fund side. Pierce, starting with you, perhaps you could give us a very brief introduction on the Marion Investment Management Funds, please. Sure. I mean, Marion Investment Managers has, which was the company was established a long time ago and we've got a very well clearly defined process. We manage a range of different funds from cash through bonds to equities alternatives. But our most popular funds are multi-asset funds. And these funds invest in the whole range of assets and it's, it provides investors with both exposure to return-seeking assets and with exposure to defensive assets. So it's kind of looking for the best of both worlds that when equity markets are positive, you don't sacrifice your return because you have exposure to growth assets or return-seeking assets and you don't give back very much of it because you have that active exposure to, to defensive assets. Thanks. And Pramit, same question. Well, our core fund is a global equity income fund, which is a style of uh, investing we've been running since 2002. It's, it's a very easy concept. It's, it's uh, a conservative way to invest in, in shares. It looks for about 30 or 35 financially strong companies, which have very strong cash flow, pretty boring businesses, but they grow the dividend every year. And if you leave it alone, it does perfectly well, no matter what. Okay, thanks. Pierce, I suppose to really kick things off, anyone who's familiar with our, our writings and our publications over the last number of months will be fully aware that we have been very cautious and very risk averse. We've been seeing pockets of opportunities in various sectors and stocks, etc. But generally, we've been quite defensive in our outlook. Coming into last week, felt kind of straightforward. Markets were at all-time highs. We had this defensive and we were waiting for an opportunity. And lo and behold, we've had the biggest 
market sell-off since the 2008 financial crisis. Equities are down nearly 10% in a very short space of time. So, Pierce, nice easy question for you. Perhaps you could maybe just give us a bit of a backstory in terms of where we're at and, and how we got to where we are yeah, today. I suppose before I get into what happened over the last week and the coronavirus, etc., um, as you said, we've had a cautious view for a number of months. But I suppose the equity market had a very strong rally in around this time last year after the December 2018 sell-off on the back of expectations for an improvement in growth in the first quarter of last year. And we were very positive this time last year, but as those expectations for growth didn't materialize, the narrative became it'll happen in Q2, then it'll happen in H2, then it'll happen in the fourth quarter, then it'll happen in the first quarter of this year, and they keep getting pushed out. But a big reason for the rally in the second half in particular of last year, I think, was the Federal Reserve. I'll get back to that in a bit, but the narrative out there is that there was going to be an economic recovery, a V-shaped recovery, and earnings were going to recover very rapidly because of the trade deal. But if you look at under the bonnet of the market, forgetting about headline index levels, if it was genuinely a belief that the trade deal was going to lead to improved growth in global trade, then the German market would have performed very strongly. It didn't. It more or less went sideways. If it was a belief that the global economy was going to recover very rapidly, then you'd expect the transports in the US, the guys who move all the goods around when times are good, you would have expected those companies to do very well. They didn't, they went sideways. And the mix within the market was very defensive, so it was driven by utilities, the sort of companies that Pramit's talking about, companies that pay nice dividends, consumer staples companies, and technology companies as well. And there's certain elements of technology companies that are seen as quite having quite defensive characteristics. Yeah, on that, I mean, one key term that's come out in the last number of weeks has been the market breadth. Perhaps you could expand on that as well. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the, one of the many factors that we look at and when, we, when we're talking about market breadth, is you're asking, is this a general rising tide lifts all boats, mm. or is it being driven by a couple of very specific sectors or specific stocks? And to sort of put some numbers around that, the US market rose by about 6% in the second half of last year, but fully one third of that move was driven by just nine stocks. And they only represented, they represented less than 15% of the total market capitalization. So yes, they were very large companies, and they're companies that are doing very well, but a lot of this move came from multiple expansion. And we think it wasn't driven by genuine expectations of economic growth or trade or the trade deal. It was driven by the Federal Reserve's balance sheet expansion. And by stocks, I suppose names, just if we're all familiar, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, <coughs> and Google will be the key yeah. names. We, we will touch into more stocks specific later on, but the point is that so few stocks are really driving this rally. Yeah, and I think part of the reason for that is that it's... The rally was really driven by the Federal Reserve and its quantitative easing. And what I, what I mean by that is the Federal Reserve rapidly expanded its balance sheet. And what that means really is that they lent $400 billion to banks to do with whatever they like. And when there's so much cheap money floating around, it goes into the hottest stocks. Mm -hmm. And the hot stocks at the time, or over the last number of months, have been the technology companies the companies focused on renewable energy, those sort of companies, and those companies have done very, very well, and they've driven the market higher. And leading us on to where we were positioned, we saw indices at all-time highs, particularly in the US, and uh, as I said, we've mentioned, we have been quite cautious, quite risk-averse, but lo and behold, we have the last couple of days, so yeah, obviously suppose, coronavirus, so... Well, risk happens fast, <laughs> it's... Uh, yes. But I suppose the key point is that when index levels were up at where they were at, valuations looked very stretched, it looked like a lot of investors were all in 
on equities because everyone was bullish and that gave us a lot of cause for thought I suppose because the economic data kind of had to search for any signs of stabilization or certainly any signs for growth. There were some signs that growth was stabilizing at a low level, but very little sign that you were going to get this magical V-shaped recovery that the market has continually pushed out. And earnings forecasts for this year were even to us, looked optimistic even to us at the start of the year before the coronavirus outbreak. And because of this, the outbreak of this, it's effectively the Chinese economy has ground to a halt over the last number of weeks. And why that's an issue is that it's because of the global supply chain and how integrated it is and just-in-time management. If you're making a product that has 500 components, if you're missing just one of those components, you have no product. So that's a key worry for the markets. And I suppose that's why the trade war last year was such a concern for the market, because there was this feeling that it would disrupt the global supply chain. And here you have something that's just disrupted a bang like that. And it's a question of how long does it continue for? And I suppose if the markets hadn't been so elevated when this finally, and this, don't forget, this didn't just happen at the weekend. This has been going on for seven weeks now. There's plenty of evidence out there to suggest that the markets were getting very stretched, getting very lackadaisical about the impact on the global supply chain. And a very stretched valuations, as you met, it was a bit of a perfect storm in a very short space of time, so yeah. the market naturally <coughs> it, Well, the stretch valuations combined with time when investors had very little protection in terms of foot options or in terms mm. of hedges in place, because they'd all been taken off because they were costing money. Thank you. We might come back to that later on and maybe <coughs> delve into some more stock specifics, Pramit. But I suppose the other big story in the last number of weeks has been the momentous and pretty unprecedented general election in Ireland. So, Laura, our head of pensions, perhaps you could talk us through the pension landscape after that and where do you see things going from here? Well, I suppose momentous is right and I suppose nobody can say pensions are boring following the general election. It was one of the top three issues for the electorate on doorsteps. Lagging obviously significantly behind housing and health, but top three nonetheless. I suppose while government formation is still ongoing, it's worth considering what each of the political parties are proposing by way of policy. Firstly, in relation to the personal relief limit. So I suppose at the moment for individuals contributing to a pension, they get tax relief on those personal contributions. And that's based on a limit of age and net relevant earnings subject to an earnings cap of 115,000. Sinn Féin are proposing that the earnings cap is reduced from 115,000 down to 60,000. If we move on to the standard fund threshold, the standard fund threshold is the maximum pension an individual can contribute to in Ireland without triggering a tax liability currently. And the standard fund threshold is 2 million. Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael aren't proposing any changes and are indeed maintaining the status quo in relation to the standard fund threshold. The Green Party are proposing an annual cap relief limit based on an annual pension of 48,000. And Sinn Féin are, I suppose, part of the 500 million crackdown on the so-called gold-plated pensions, are proposing that the standard fund threshold is reduced from 2 million down to 1.2 million. I suppose then in relation to re the real whiplash that politicians got on the doorsteps, yeah. it was in relation to the pensions age, and this was very, very topical through the campaign. And by way of background, the state contributory pension age at the moment is 66, and it's legislated to increase to 67 next year and 68 in 2028. And I suppose the real issue for individuals is that those that are retiring now at 65, they have to wait a year, two years, and three years ultimately until the state contributory pension kicks in. And of course, this creates a lot of noise, and without surprise, I suppose all the political parties are proposing changes to address this. Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael are proposing that the state transition pension is reintroduced 
and that would kick in at 65 and would bridge the gap essentially until the state contributory pension kicks in. You have Sinn Féin and people before profit that are proposing that the state contributory pension age is just reduced down to 65. And 65 sounds great, I suppose, mm. for most people, but it is as if it's sustainable. And I suppose if we look at the empirical data, and I would suggest it's not, and a lot mm. of, I suppose, the left-wing commentary during the campaign focused on the pensions time bomb being a myth or demographics just looking after themselves. And I suppose, again, if you look at the data, it just this doesn't support it. Uh, we know CSO project that by 2055, the over 65 population will increase by 25%. Mm. Last year, the government did a national risk assessment plan, and they estimate by 2055, those in receipt of the state contributory pension will double. And then we look at the dependency ratio. And the dependency ratio is really important. Currently in Ireland, it's five to ones with five workers for every retiree. And again, by 2055, it's estimated that that will be two to one. So we'll only have two workers for every retiree. So I suppose sustainability is a big concern. And I suppose when you take the dependency ratio and if you take the fact that we're all living longer and we're also trying to maintain the current level of provision that is there, there are major challenges in relation to the funding mm -hmm. of this. And I suppose while Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael and Green Party Coalition might look likely now, which won't mean huge impact on pension reform or policy, what this election has taught us, I suppose, is to expect the unexpected. Mm. And if and when there is another general election, we could see left-wing, I suppose, pension policy reform really, really change the landscape drastically. Yeah, more uncertainty, I suppose, is the thing. Uh, guys, have mm. you any more to add in terms of your own or... Any kind of obvious exposure to what's been going on? I suppose, you know, bearing in mind all the pension situation, surely it's pretty straightforward. You pick one of the best, one of you two, who performs the best, you put it in a pension, it's that straightforward. Is that how this works? That's like the two of us now. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'll put it against you both. Maybe you might give us a sense of your performance so far and how that works. And then perhaps, Laura, you could come through in terms of the pension sure. and, and how we find it in. So I suppose, guys, coming to you and your own performance, have you managed to navigate everything that's gone on the last number of weeks and months? Pierce. Well, in terms of the, our multi-asset funds, as I said, they have a mix of growth assets and defensive assets. And we've been defensively positioned anyway. Mm. So, but, but even at that, we were, because we were defensively positioned, we were overweight the stocks that were driving the market higher. And as the market fell back, our asset allocation kicked in in terms of having a low exposure <laughs> to equities. Mm. And the alternative allocation kicked in and the defensive assets kicked in. So we've managed to protect quite a lot of the gains that we've made over the last while, but that's looking at a very short term. And I think getting back to your earlier question, it's not just a question of picking the best fund. That's obviously great if you do that, but you need to make sure that you save enough. Yes. You need to make sure that you start early enough. You also need to, when you're looking at a fund, you need to look for consistency of returns. Mm -hmm. So you don't just look at the guy who's done really well year to date, because that might mask a multitude. Mm -hmm. You need to look for consistency in terms of the deliverability of returns. And in order to do that, you need to have a clearly defined investment process. And I think as an active manager, I'm always going to extol the virtues of active management. But active management, I think, will really come to the fore and come into its own over the next couple of years because volatility has been suppressed mm. so significantly over the last number of years that as that volatility starts to return to the market, it really gives the opportunities for an active investment manager to outperform at all levels of the the asset spectrum. So not just in uh, not just in not just in the equity content, but in the defensive content also. Okay, and I suppose in choosing 
various funds. Well, and it's not the, just about performance. Within the, well, it is. Uh, retirement planning is a multi-step yes. uh, process. And I suppose when we're looking at putting a plan in place for a client, it's very personal to that individual mm. and it will take account of a very wide range of factors. It obviously depends on when the individual is starting to plan for retirement, what is their intended retirement date, have they other income sources? Will they be carrying debt into retirement? Have they dependents? What is their capacity for loss and their appetite for risk? So with all of that, I suppose we have to define, I suppose, what the client objective and goal is and then implement, I suppose, a funding plan and investment strategy then to ultimately meet those identified objectives and goals. And once that's implemented, I suppose it's constant review thereafter. I suppose... If we take an individual that is starting off in their 20s and 30s, that individual is doing well to start, yeah. <laughs> first off. And it's more an issue when looking at that um, of affordability, that they're not locking away too much too early and in which they can't afford it. But arguably, that individual would be investing in a high-risk equity fund, obviously, for long-term investment growth. Taking that individual then into... 40s and 50s, they're more retirement-minded and they might be catching up on the funding process. They'll probably be in a better position to maybe afford, I suppose, ongoing contributions. But in that regard, as Pierce sort of alluded to there, that diversification is key mm. and a multi-asset portfolio then obviously will carry them into, I suppose, the next stage mm. of retirement. And we look at, I suppose, the pension life cycle really within three stages. The 20s and 30s and the 40s and 50s, as I mentioned there, that's the accumulation stage. The second stage then is as one is approaching retirement or in retirement. And a lot of, I suppose, advice would have really just focused on that stage years ago. And it's obviously a lot more complex. But then I suppose as they're coming into stage two, the approaching retirement, they will be de-risking, at least if only to increase cash to facilitate tax-free lump sum drawdown, yeah. which will be a max of 25% of the retirement pot. And then we move to the third retirement stage, which is in retirement. And I suppose prior to the introduction of the approved retirement fund, People didn't have to worry about this stage at all. They would have gone the annuity route and they wouldn't have had to take any ongoing investment mm. risk. The approved retirement fund allows a client, I suppose, to stay invested subject and being willing to take ongoing investment risk. And it allows them to take an income subject to meeting the mandatory drawdown requirement, but also ability then to pass on wealth then to spouse and dependents. And I suppose up to that point, an individual may be investing for capital growth maybe then switching to an income strategy then to facilitate, I suppose, the mandatory drawdowns. Brilliant. And guys, I assume you might talk us through a couple of your specific funds you have under management that might cater for the different stages in the uh, retirement process. For ARF, we, look, we mix people with our equity income, which gives a very good income to mm. fund uh, the ARF payments, and then we try and build in some other income-generating things. So things we look at are, uh, we've invested in a few renewable companies who've got very good yields coming off them. We've invested in some high-yield funds that are generating about a 4% income, and some property REITs around Europe are also generating about a 4% yield. So when you put all that together, you get a nice, very diversified, mm. reasonably low mix, uh, risk mix, 4% income coming off them. And Pierce? Yeah, in terms of the, our multi-asset funds, we have a range of multi-asset funds. It's really to suit, A, everyone's in investment preference, so some people are more prone to take more risk or some people mm -hmm. 
prefer to take less risk, so we have a range of funds that to suit that requirement. And also, as you approach retirement, you probably should be taking more risk off the table. And within those funds, it's having the broad sweep of assets that are somewhat uncorrelated to reduce the volatility of your, your portfolio, because the last thing you want is a big 20% drawdown. So. Okay, thanks for that, Laura. Very comprehensive on the on the pension side. I suppose coming back to the broader markets and the big themes, Pierce, perhaps you could give us some key themes you guys have within the mix of your funds, and how have you managed to navigate the current extremely volatile environment that we find ourselves yeah, I in? I guess the way we view the world is we're in, like notwithstanding what's happened over the last week, we're in a low growth, high risk, highly liquid world. So from that perspective, you want to be, we're also in a world where interest rates are negative in Europe and very low mm. elsewhere, and bond yields are very low. So you don't have the sort of usual fallback to, I can get 5% by owning a government bond, because that's very, you can't get that anymore. So you're getting a re you, negative return. You're getting a negative return in European bonds. You can get a positive return mm. in US bonds, but you have to take currency exposure yes. to get that. So when you're in that sort of environment, you look around, well, we're always looking for companies that have generate significant returns in capital well in excess of their cost of capital. That's kind of an obvious one mm. to look for. But you're also looking for companies that don't face regulatory headwinds, that have regulatory tailwinds behind them, such as the utility companies that are at the forefront of renewable energy generation. Mm. So they've got a significant regulatory tailwind behind them. They're great businesses and they're growing their market share in a growing market. We look for companies that are using innovation to consumers as opposed to having to have a shop to sell to the, to the consumer. They can just sell online. That greatly reduces their costs and increases their, I suppose, their exposure to the market. We're looking for companies that have the, the guys that own all the data and payment providers as well. So those companies, we're looking for those sort of companies that have significant returns in capital, continually compounding their returns in capital, and have stable, a stable set of returns. Okay, and Pramit, you might give us a few nuggets, a few yeah. names, uh, given everything that's happening at the moment well, we that don't stick really, out. Yeah, we don't really know how bad it's going to get with the protection measures taken for coronavirus. I just saw before we started this that Japan have, uh, or at least their government, have instructed all schools to be closed until April the 8th, that's five weeks, 13 million children not going to school and all the associated mm. disruption. So I, th I think uh, we could be heading for some kind of, a, well, hopefully only a mild recession at worst. So we've been changing the portfolio a little bit. We've, we've raised more cash, that's easy to do. We sold at a more cyclical areas that we had. We had some oil companies, but we've got rid of those. And then we're trying to find areas that should do well if we get this slowdown. So in, in America, we're looking at Walmart, which we all probably have all shopped in but if you've gone, but they, they've obviously a very, very fine business, but also they've got a very strong online business that will be able to fight off Amazon. And I think if you get some kind of panic buying of, of stuff that we've seen in, in some of the Asian cities, that they should do very well out of that. We've also got a, a large investment in Nestle, again, another pretty boring company, but 25 years in a row, they've been growing their dividend and the stock went out of fashion from the stuff that Pierce was talking about. All the tech stocks became in fashion, everything else was dumped and uh, Nestle has dropped 10 or 15% in the last three or four months. So again, mm -hmm. very, very attractive there. And then playing the theme of uh, the change in energy, where we're going to be getting our energy from, we've invested in a renewables company called Vestas, which is a Danish company that is a leading maker of uh, wind turbines in the world. So I think that's, that's a you know, we see a long run of investment in those, no matter what's going on in the world. So 
and then on the sell side, very difficult to sell. The stock has done so well for us, one that the ladies would know very well, Louis Vuitton, and we bought that uh, four years ago at about 120 euros, and we just sold it there last week at 400. And a fantastic company, but 30% of the sales come from China or Chinese tourists, so I think they're, they're going to have a quite big downgrade coming through. So maybe we can buy that back 30% cheaper next year. If we can, we will. Okay, and I suppose another big story that will really start to kick on in the next number of weeks is the U.S. election, the upcoming U.S. election. Traditionally and historically, it's been a good year for equity markets in a U.S. election, but given everything that's going on and the potential political fallout from this, I mean, the coronavirus, for example, has not yet officially hit the states. What could that do politically? There's talk that perhaps the current president has taken his eye off the ball in terms of expenditure in prevention. So will the chickens come home to roost there? But guys, how do you see that? Do you think that's going to be a new potential hand grenade into the mix as we approach an election later in the year? I think it certainly is. The numerous studies have shown that the probability of an incumbent getting re-elected is going to be determined by the trajectory of the economy into the, in the six months before the election. It doesn't matter how well the economy has done in the prior three years, if it's entering a small downturn as in the run-up to the election, the incumbent tends to do badly. I'm not saying that's definitely going to happen, but certainly that would increase the probability of Trump losing the election and the Democratic nominee, and if it's Bernie Sanders, then that will create significant volatility in markets, given not so much that it's not the, oh, he's a socialist, it's a bad thing, it's, the, it's he wants to go after the healthcare system, he wants to go after the big monopolies so it'll create risks but also opportunities and that's what we're always looking for as an active investment manager we're looking for opportunities we don't just passively invest in whatever the biggest stocks are you you invest in whatever <laughs> delivers or is likely to deliver that better return on capital at attractive valuations and Pramit any particular names you're looking at stateside that you mentioned Walmart that throw up in this environment yeah. uh, particular niche opportunity um, so the other names we look at, well, we still like the big safe defensive things. Johnson Johnson's very, very good as well. And then on the uh, industrial side, American industrial companies are very good. So we've got holdings in Honeywell and uh, United Technologies. United Technologies owns excellent businesses like Otis, the, the lifts and elevators, and Carrier, they make a lot of the air conditioning units, and Chubb, which is fire safety, so a really good engineering company. But I think all of those are probably under the cosh a little bit at the moment while mm. we're trying to figure out where we are. but. If we can get this rebound in China, the signs, you know, if you believe the, the data from China, clearly the, the, the rate of deaths has reduced quite a bit in the last week or two, but also a lot of the factories are starting up. A lot of them, uh, we've gotten a survey this morning, a lot of the factories on the coast of the smaller cities like Guangdong, they're up to 80% capacity back again. So those get going again, and maybe as we hopefully solve the, uh, the virus in terms of uh, medicines or vaccines, I think, those types of companies would do really well again. We could get a, a very strong lift in them. So we have an environment, a market that's had a very sharp correction in a very short space of time. Valuations are coming back to more palatable levels. Uncertainty persists, but we also have global central bank intervention, which in theory should underpin risk assets to some extent. So it's a, more of a case for we see opportunity on our preferred names and more strategic plays going forward. I don't think, it's a, time to be, to I don't think it's a time to be brave. I think uh, we don't really know how bad this is going to be. I think, I don't know what, how much the Dow will fall when the first American is going to die from them. Inevitably, one out of 330 million, somebody's going to have to die. So um, there's, there's nothing, you know, 
controversial and that is just uh, I think I think some sometime around that unfortunately I think that's probably a time that you'd be looking at and maybe get another five or six or seven hundred <coughs> points off in the Dow. I think the key question is going to be around when the market starts looking through the yeah. supply chain disruption and it's really the supply chain disruption that the market is concerned about that there's consumer demand for products but there's no product or that suddenly there's no consumer demand and it's that that again as I said that just-in-time management of we need the product to put into this to assemble we need this component to assemble this product and we order it today get it tomorrow that just the risk that that gets significantly disrupted is huge and when you get a bit more clarity in terms of when the factories are finally coming back on stream and the supply chain can resolve itself then the market will start to look through any near-term economic or poor economic data we're very much headline driven for the short term anyway yeah I'd like to thank you all for your contribution. Thank you very much. I'm very conscious of time as well. We are trying to keep this within 45 minutes. So I would like to perhaps open it up to the floor on a Q&A if there's any questions for the panel for the next 10 or 15 minutes or so. Just to remind you all again that it is an audio recording. So if you have a question, it will be part of the online podcast, which we wish to share with you when it's done. So. If there's any questions for the floor, our team are around, so we've microphones in place, so just put your hand up, please, and hopefully we can help. Uh, just a theme I haven't really heard uh, from the panel. ESG is a big issue in the market. You know, you see the big international fund managers now talking about ESG and how it's influencing their investment decisions. Is this something, I suppose, Pierce and Paramus, that you're looking at, and what weight does it carry, I suppose, in your investment process and decision-making in individual stocks? Yeah, I mean, we have ethically screened funds that are they're multi-asset funds, so they just have a, a very specific ethical screen overlaying them so that there are certain companies they can't buy. And we, But what we do, and it's, it's sort of creeping into our more mainstream funds as well, as you said, ESG is becoming much more important for, for investors. And I think that might be partly to do with why energy companies or traditional energy companies have been doing so poorly, certainly on a relative basis, and why companies at the forefront of the renewable energy team have been doing so well. Now, not just because they're going to make lots of money on it, but because funds are flowing towards those sort of areas, those thematic areas. And it is an area that's becoming much more important. It's, it's an area we've always had something of a focus on, but probably more of a focus now than we would have 10 years ago or 15 years ago. Just on that, actually, in relation to pensions, we there is a new directive, IOPS 2, that is due to come into, uh, be transposed into Irish law. And it's been obviously implemented in other EU countries. And I suppose as part of it, um, there's 66 articles, and Article 19 focuses on investments for pension schemes and trustees. A huge component of that is um, ethical investing for trustees within pension schemes. Others would be limiting investments to regulated markets and obviously no gearing and so on and so forth. But ESG would form a, a huge component of that when it is transposed into, into law. Yeah, I suppose to note as well, Canada do have an ethical fund on our platform. If that's something of interest, I suppose give any of us a shout and we'd be happy to talk through it in more detail. 
you mentioned other stocks as well that are got headwinds and tailwinds, but yeah. certainly the big oil companies will be in the eye of the storm. Traditional they're definitely, names uh, they're definitely uh, under the cosh, yeah. and then uh, perhaps associated companies in, in the same area. And, and there's a big drive, clearly, uh, from investors to invest in ESG and from regulators to push a lot of the renewable energy through and the big targets and all the stuff about electric cars that we're all familiar with. So there's a lot of those things going on, and obviously that's pushing money into those areas. So I mean, we, we, you know, the firm as a whole, as we all know, uh, have a big holding in Green Coat Renewables, which is a, a very good wind energy farm <coughs> business. It's a very nice yield. I mean, they're, they're easy ways to play that theme, but definitely mm. you're going to see huge flows into that area and uh, out of the, the non-friendly areas. Uh, you mentioned earlier that the concentration of the American market in the five big tech stocks. I'm more intrigued by the, the concentration of the world in US equities, which now I believe account for 60% of global market capitalization, even though the US only accounts for, I guess, 15 to 20% of global GDP. I just wonder, Pramit, in, in, in 10 years' time, would we look back and say, we should have spotted that, that's crazy. Just can we look back now and see that in 2000, and two, in 2000, technology, media, and telecom were a third of the US equity market. And even worse, when I look back and see in 2007, that banks and builders were two thirds of the US market. I think it's a very valid point, Frank, certainly looking at those fans, the, the, the Facebook, Apple, the, the five of them, they're about 20% of the market cap now of, uh, of America and about, they're quite profitable, of course, so they're about 15% of the, uh, the revenues. So, but they, they do seem to be very, very highly valued, a lot of them. Uh, it's just extraordinary that Apple's on nearly 30 times earnings. You could have bought it. They were throwing it away in the street five years ago, 10 times earnings. Nobody wanted to know about it. Uh, when the iPhone 6 went wrong. So <coughs> I, I think you're right. We look back in 10 years and perhaps the, the American market has, has got too overvalued. But we do need Europe. Obviously, European companies to do better and, and Japanese companies better. And we need uh, growth back in Asia again. I think you'll see a, a twist back towards those um, things. And maybe this is a catalyst now for, for them to be correct. Here's something. Yeah, I don't really have much to add apart from that. As you said, these companies are very profitable, but they are global companies. So. It's not; they're not dependent wholly on U.S. GDP. They're dependent on global GDP because they are truly global companies. But as you said, Apple on 28, 30 times earnings versus its long-term average of about 12 or 13. Notwithstanding the time it was looked very cheap at 10 times, but it's twice the valuation that it normally trades on. I mean, a good example of that is since the Federal Reserve started expanding its balance sheet and doling out cheap money. Apple's market cap went up by $400 billion, which meant its, its PE ratio over the last year doubled. And what does that mean? It means you're literally paying twice for what you were getting because their earnings haven't really expanded that much. And don't get me wrong, Apple's a fantastic company, but there are times when you want to own it and times when you don't. And that's what active management is all about. In fact, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, and Google grew earnings per share in the last quarter earnings by... It's 16%, and if you strip that out, earnings, the last quarter earnings growth flat. would have been flat to possibly negative. And it is interesting that now that's starting to come through on the, on the news. We saw Apple the last couple of days come out, warn about the impact of the coronavirus, and last night Microsoft as well. Yeah. So I suppose it does provide opportunity if you felt it was too expensive in the first place to come in and quite quickly. For those who didn't hear, I was just asking the panel to have a view on gold right now. <coughs> Yeah, I mean, we're, we're overweight gold in our yeah. multi-asset portfolios. It's just another asset. It's the sort of asset that 
you know, does well in times of stress. And it looked, it has, we've been overweight that asset for quite some time. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a good diversifier because it is not anti-correlated with uh, equity markets. So at the moment, with, with such uncertainty there, it's, it's a good thing to have. Despite the fact that it's a, technically it looks very, very toppy. It's, uh, it's a momentum play. With gold, is a, gold is the sort of asset, it doesn't have a yield, it doesn't pay a dividend. It's the sort of asset that you buy when real yields are very low. And by that, I mean inflation-adjusted yields. Mm -hmm. So when they're very low, it's at times of high inflation, which is why it's seen as an inflation hedge, or at times when the economy is depressed. Okay. So that's... And typically, how would you play it? Is it through an exchange-traded fund? Or do you pick specific stocks? Or well, we, we use an exchange-traded fund. <coughs> Okay. Yeah, no. we can buy futures or we can buy exchange traded funds. Okay. Don't Sorry, forget the other antidote to the virus, Netflix shares. Have a look at them. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> They've gone ballistic. Yeah. But if you're at home and you have two weeks in quarantine, That's what else exactly, you can do? yeah. <laughs> and Apple as well, they have a subscription model as well, don't they? Yeah, Netflix. <laughs> ones, yeah. A few opportunities. Sorry, we had a question. So actually, this is a question more for Laura. So I think I was reading before the elections happened that uh, auto enrollment within pensions was proposed. Do you think that will still go ahead? Is that on the agenda? Auto enrollment formed uh, one of the key strands in the pension, the roadmap for pension reform 2018 to 23. And when it was put and designed, it was always going to be across governments. I think all parties are in agreement that something like auto-enrollment needs to come into play. Other countries have very successfully rolled it out, and it has achieved what it set out to do in terms of increasing pension coverage. Maybe not adequacy, but coverage. And I think it's worth pointing out that only a third of private sector workers are actively contributing to a pension scheme presently. So what auto-enrollment will do, it will take the decision out of it for employees. And I suppose by taking the decision out of it, it takes the inertia out of it. So it will definitely bring more people into private pension provision, which would be a positive. So I think it will happen. It's, uh, the design features are, uh, some are, have been confirmed following the straw man consultation, and then other design features have yet to be confirmed. So we await what they would look like. Okay, we've managed to keep that relatively tight. Again, Pramit, Pierce, and Laura, thank you so much for your contribution. And to you all, I hope you found the session informative. We'll, the, the panel will be here for a few minutes after if you have any more follow-up questions. And we hope to see you again in future seminars. Thank you all for your attendance and uh, for your contribution. This recording does not constitute personal recommendations nor provide the sole basis for any evaluation for the securities discussed. Specific advice should always be sought prior to investment based on the particular circumstances of individual investors. Past performance is not a reliable guide to future performance. The value of your investment may go down as well as up. Cantor Fitzgerald and Merion Investment Managers are regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Disclosures relating to our research and our terms and conditions can be found on our website at cantorfitzgerald.ie.